Welcome to another episode of the Digital Built Australia podcast, the podcast that unpacks the ways in which digital technologies and data insights can shape a highly productive and sustainable built environment. My name is Adam Beck, and along with my co-host, Gavin Cottrell, we'll use this podcast to share insights about the places, spaces, and assets that we shape, and the policymakers, practitioners, and researchers and innovators behind the work. So let's get to it. In this episode of the DBA podcast, we chat with Claire Daniel and Dr. Ollie Locke. Claire is currently a Plantech Project Officer part-time with the Planning Institute of Australia, while also being Scientia PhD scholar at the University of New South Wales, where she's been undertaking her research for more than four and a half years. Prior to that, Claire was a consultant at SGS Economics, data officer placement at Greater London Authority, and spent years as an urban planner with Brisbane City Council. Ollie is currently director of the AI Solutions Studio at Deloitte. Prior to that, a principal consultant in data scientist at DataSpark. He was director and founder of Civability for a couple of years, specialist consultant in mobility data science for the World Bank, and over five and a half years as a senior data scientist in transport and cities with Arab. He also spent time, of course, as a senior lecturer and researcher while doing his PhD as well at the University of New South Wales in city analytics. He started his career as an analyst in transport and GIS at Vichlister Consulting. We hope you enjoy this episode. So Ollie and Claire, thanks uh, so much for joining us on the DBA podcast. Settled up here beside me, Gavin Cottrell, my co-host. This is one of our early episodes where we've got multiple, not only hosts, Gavin and myself, but also uh, multiple guests. So firstly, thanks for joining us in this new experimentation. How are you both? Claire, maybe over to you first. How are things? Yeah, no, not too bad. Um, I mean, in the dying days of a PhD, so uh, <laughs> a little tired and stressed and just got back from a conference from Canada, but it's yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much. Ollie, uh, welcome. How are things? I'm good. I'm in sunny, wintry Sydney. I'm still waiting for winter to actually hit. Uh, had a gorgeous morning today on the water and yeah, I've been dreaming a lot about generative AI, so I'm definitely keen to have a good discussion today. Well, that is certainly uh, certainly the, the topic we've broadly said collectively. We want to explore the idea of kind of AI and the built environment. And when we talk about the built environment here, we talk about sort of the manifestation of all the stuff that we see when we walk out the door in the morning. So let's sort of kick off. And I'd like to get us moving broadly in a more contextual way, a bit of a scene setter. Where are we at with AI and the built environment broadly? So can we start there? So really just opening perspectives, I, I suppose. Claire, we might might start with you and then, you know, Ollie take, uh, take off after Claire. But AI and the built environment, how would you open this conversation? What would you say? Yeah, well, I guess I can speak best to my my own expertise, and that is looking at at how urban planners use technology um, to do the things they do. And really here we can see that as people, as professionals, we're using AI all the time. It's embedded in things like Google and now we have, have things like ChatGPT. 
Um, but I think when it comes to AI that's tailored specifically for planning, um, it's still quite early days in, in terms of thinking about that. Um, there are th three things that I'm really thinking about when it comes to AI and what, what urban planners do. And this is one, the idea of using AI to help us plan for better futures. And here, I'm quite skeptical, actually. Um, AI is based um, inherently on data from the past. And the job of urban planners is really to intervene in in what's happened in the past in order to create and change something to create a better future. So um, really, whether or not it can actually be that helpful in, in that kind of way is something that I'm still not particularly convinced by. But that being said, there is significant disruption. Everyone's been talking about ChatGPT. Urban planners spend a lot of their time writing reports, assessing development applications, um, all of this administrative stuff, all this procedural stuff. And AI definitely will have a big impact in that world and grappling with that and making sure, sure people are using it, are able to integrate that into their work and get prepared for that kind of disruption um, is something that's really close to my heart. Um, and the third thing with urban planning is actually around community consultation and mm -hmm. disinformation in the urban planning process. So now we have the ability to, like, the release of ChatGPT has just massively dropped the barrier, the resources required to generate huge amounts of content. Um, and this could be useful content, but it could also be mm. disinformation. Um, and if you think of your standard community consultation process, that you might have an urban planning. We we often have traditionally in the past just asked like, oh, send us an email with yeah. your thoughts on the plan, even if it's not a, a proper kind of DDoS attack where you've got billions of computers around the world kind of uh, trying to overthrow your systems. It's it's not that like a hundred automatically generated emails of all slightly different mm. um, types is enough to break that kind of submissions, process. right? And you know all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So that. And, and misinformation on social media and all of all of that kind of thing. Um, so how do we make sure we're do it, using it in all the best ways to help our community understand the process? There's a lot of really good things about AI um, in terms of hopefully making things more accessible. You can summarize things in plain language. People can interact with digital systems without necessarily needing to know exactly which button to press on the website or which form to fill in like there's a lot of opportunity there to make things much more accessible but um there are also a lot of other things that planners need to be thinking about yeah so yeah that's that's a overview of what's on my mind <laughs> yeah a, a great a great sort of kickstarter ollie what what what's your sort of opening state yeah, here as well I think that was a great kind of summary of all of the essentially you know countering quite a bit of the hype and excitement and saying you know like, you know let's you know we've let this thing out of the bag but let's like control it and make sure it doesn't you know destroy all the stuff that we've been building for ages i'm so, there are so many things that i think can and will change uh, particularly based on obviously the most recent realm of generative ai i think just to tie things in with the i guess the last season on digital twins i think to some extent, the technology around a lot of the optimization problems in the built environment around urban planning and transport planning and built environment are actually quite mature. I think there's probably like an adoption curve or some kind of 
uh, barrier to adoption that might be faced with those kind of technologies coming in. But I actually think a lot of them are quite mature. So our ability to you know, monitor things like urban heat island, our ability to come up with a really nice design that fits a whole bunch of different engineering and design and user requirements is pretty solid. Our ability to you know, forecast demand and predict things like traffic flow and congestion and things like that are all very mature. I think now the really exciting time is that I think we're giving a wider audience an easier way to talk to those models. So I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, the ability and some of the stuff I've been seeing in my work at the moment is the ability for people to talk with natural language now mm. to things that previously needed to be coded. So I go, hey, I've got this model and that model can be anything. It can be a transfer model, it can be a financial model, it can be uh, any other type of mathematical model or anything like that. And that's usually turned into some programming language or some code or some SQL query into a database. And then something gets processed and that has all these different assumptions in there. And some of those assumptions are blocked uh, to the user that's making the query. But now people can really go and talk to that model and understand it in a much more interactive way at the front end. But they can also talk to the outputs in a more interactive way. So I think, you know, pretty much we're essentially beginning to create conversational digital twins, uh, conversational models, and essentially be able to help that communication. I think the generator, I think it's actually created a better way for us to talk to machines and data and algorithms, which I think is super exciting. And I think there's a lot of really cool applications for that. Um, you know, an architecture firm, for example, I'm just, I'm just making this up on the spot, could actually codify their design standards or like their their vision or their style into an API where someone can talk to it and get home designs and floor plans directly from that rather than them having to actually build the design themselves. And that way that that design can scale and that artist can scale as well, uh, which I think, again, is really exciting. I definitely agree on the points related to uh, community consultation. And it's actually really interesting to come up with the idea of, you know, generating misinformation. And part of my research when I was at UNSW was looking at essentially the validity of things like tweets as public participation mechanisms. And we were looking at, hey, if I if I directly message the people that made feedback with tweets about the transport network and said, hey, what's your most important issue about transport? Uh, they might go, oh, well, it's not what I tweeted. But then the government have looked at that and gone like, oh, this is important because I found it in the public realm as a form of feedback. And I think... Mm -hmm. Generative AI actually might be super useful in order to make like almost be able to filter that storm and look for, you know, legitimacy in phrasing, look for themes, look for trends and kind of summarize them to so go, okay, here are all the key issues that come from this feedback, but we've also been identified particular things that might be spam or they might be this or might be that because they have so many language rules embedded in them. I think GPT-4 allegedly has a hundred trillion different language rules embedded in it, uh, which, is, which is quite insane, mm. to be honest. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely an exciting time for built environment and yeah, keen to yeah, discuss it with you guys. Great topic. Yeah, thanks. So what I'm really keen to understand from from both of you is really around those that, that key use case development. What what are you what are you seeing? Is it around bottom up use cases are being developed to to solve a a unique solution? Or is he, are you starting to see more of a a program or a portfolio of use cases that can be applied across mm. whether it's planning infrastructure. What what the listeners in terms of oh, uh, yeah. is it is it bottom up? Is it top down in terms of within organizations that you're, yeah. you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. This is yeah, this is really relevant to some of the stuff that I've been working on at the moment. Uh because mm. what I find is it, it needs to be a combination of both. I think within organizations there is probably about 10% of them 
of people that self-disrupt. They look at a process and they want to do it the most efficient way. The kind of hackers, you know, they're going to be looking for plugins. They're going to be looking at ways to automate their own work. And then from the top down, there are kind of people that, you know, also have big ideas and uh, want to create big programs of work to go, hey, like what are the highest value pool investments we can make in AI that will make the biggest impact of our organization, but also allow us to create the biggest kind of AI offerings as part of what we deliver. And that delivery could also be through the government. It doesn't have to be like a product or a service. Yeah, so I I think it's primarily, I would say the biggest interest is top down, but I also think that bottom up essentially need to be identified by the top down. And I think Mm. people are identifying their own value pools and their own improvements in processes. In the planning world, I imagine, for example, this could be something like a, hey, we've realized that the council produces a whole set of guidelines on how development should be made. And it's got, let's just, for example, 100 dot points on what this area should have in it and what the requirements are for the area. I mean, the most simple thing to do would be like, how how do I create a link between this application and these guidelines um, so that, you know, GPT can already recognize whether things are missing or whether things need to be added or whether things don't match and essentially just help you flag those things. And I imagine this, I, I, I don't, haven't worked in that context for a while, but I already imagine that people would be doing that anyway in councils, trying to do it, particularly junior staff. Um, and I imagine as well, there'd be a lot of interest from the top down to do it as well. And I think it's really about trying to make sure that uh, we identify those hackers and support them and bring them into the conversations that are happening at the top. Yeah, I I agree with what Ollie says there, trying to connect, actually, yeah, make those connections across those two things. Um, in urban planning, it can be perhaps trickier than uh, your typical private consultancy. Uh, there are obviously planners who work in private consultancies, but a lot of a lot of us work um, in the public sector as well, um, where you've got the weight of a lot of very codified processes, things that are laid out in legislation and policy and all of those kinds of things. And probably not a lot of experience at the top or even at the bottom with with technology and with AI and with what can be done. And part of my job with the Planning Institute and something I'm really passionate about is trying to get planners up to a level where they're happy feel like they can be in those conversations, um, feel like, because they have a huge amounts of expertise. Um, but I think traditionally there's been this sense and perhaps in other built environment professions that aren't necessarily um, technical, the sense that the the IT and the technology and the computing is, is someone else's problem. And you have so many organizations where you can't even download and install your own piece of software. And so this kind of creates this distance between between you and the technology which is is really not necessary in many ways. We've all kind of grown up using computers and, and phones and we actually know what kinds of things. If you give people that chance um, and you give people the agency to, to be like, actually, this is something, I've got these ideas about how we could be doing things better. Absolutely, planners are able to um, articulate that and get really excited about those conversations. I've had those conversations with people, but... Um, yeah, deliberately creating more space for that and having um, the people at the top level creating space for that would be really great to see. Yeah, uh, so it also brings me back to this point I heard the other day, which is that individuals can disrupt themselves faster than organisations. 
And so if you encourage you know, and enable people to disrupt themselves, they can do it really, really quickly. And then that can scale through the organization. But you just need to make sure, and particularly with generative and other types of AI, that all the guardrails are there to make sure that you know, no one's harmed, essentially, and like data doesn't get breached. Mm people don't get embarrassed, people don't make mistakes uh, within things like reports and things that they deliver uh, from over-relying on this stuff. And just going to make sure that, you know, this is a control, like, you know, give give me the, the tools I need to self-disrupt, but also make sure that I do it in a way that is safe and doesn't expose anyone to any any harm. Yeah, I've got a thousand questions, but but let me, let me ask one, and it relates to time. Now, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong or you you vehemently disagree, but a lot of planning processes and indeed just city building processes are slow. Mm. You know, timeframes, reviews, approvals, uh, procurement, and in the building and construction world, even though we sort of build fast, the the process from idea to eventual ribbon cutting, you know, we're talking multiple years for sort of big, chunky built environment things. So it's inherently just a slow burn process, which is city building. Mm. This is just brain hemorrhaging in terms mm. of just trying to keep up with this conversation. We're 22 minutes into a conversation that says like, how are we as a collective you know, city building community, whether we're policymakers or practitioners, how are we going to find the space to just kind of calm down? And that idea of having a strategy or a vision of what you want good to look like, I don't even know how to begin thinking about that. Does that concern you at all? Or how do we Like, how how do we plan for AI in the built environment? Maybe that's the question I'm searching for. How do we plan for this? Because I don't feel like we're planning for it at the moment. Particularly when you've got individuals who sort of, you know, really want to do better things and disrupt. I mean, how how do we bring some strategy and strategic approach to this? Well, one, one thing that we've been doing with the Planning Institute of Australia, with our Plantech advisory groups, we have adopted a couple of years ago now the 10 Plantech principles. So these are 10 principles for the implementation of technology and planning, um, and they go through a whole list of things which help answer that question around, around what good looks like, um, things around making sure that planners are part of the conversation um, when it comes to the design of digital systems that they'll be using, making sure that, again, a lot of the digitization processes and a lot of the conversation about AI as well, but um, you know, technology in general have been around this idea that we must be as efficient as possible. Um, and efficiency is, is is not inherently bad, but if we are just measuring our planning system and our built environment by how fast we are getting things done. We are missing the most important things, and that is, are we creating good places to live? So within those principles, we we speak to that and like, okay, we need to make sure that we are actively thinking about that bigger picture as we are implementing technology, um, and as we are now implementing AI, it's the same. It's still those principles uh, still apply. So yeah, there's that. We're developing some best practice guidelines um, in the early stages of drafting, but hopefully, again, that will 
provide people with templates um, that they can use as they are defining what good looks like for themselves um, that can help point, gives them some guidance about how to go through that process and hopefully um, make it a little easier and a little faster for, for people and gives them the confidence that they're, they're able to do that as well. Yeah, so that, that's just a, a couple of things that come to mind. Well, I just want to bring up from Adam's point, and we go through a, a standard management consulting approach in terms of, okay, well, what's the vision? What are we trying to achieve? What the problems are? What's our strategy? What's the business case? Uh, we do some POCs, MVPs, and we implement that. Is that the the right approach in terms of how we're looking with with AI? Are things are moving so fast? The time you do a strategy, your time you do a business case, you develop those use cases. Is that does that remain contemporary in terms of the, is that the right approach for organisations to look at? Is that traditional strategy, business case implementation? Is that is that the right approach for organisations to think about? And where should they start? on their, their AI journey if they're they're listening to this and thinking right okay where where's a good place to start yeah I guess what I was talking about I wasn't even necessarily thinking about it as a bureaucratic process uh, uh, something that needs to be baked into everything that you're doing I think there is definitely a place for that and there are a lot of organizations it's who aren't you know, who are quite well advanced and you know the New South Wales government and all the work they've been doing in the customer service department. They've got a lot of these kind of policies and guidelines and a whole AI assurance framework. Like that's already in place and that was in place before ChatGPT came out. Um, mm. So I think that work needs to be done, uh, definitely. But then um, at the other end, um, yeah, allowing time for innovation. One of my favourite leaders in in the digital world not necessarily specifically built environment um but her name's Pia Andrews um she's got a lot of experience with um digital digital government uh, has worked for a lot of different governments um around the world and lots of different government departments and what she does when she manages her team she ring fences 10% of her team's time for innovation um and that is uh, you build a wall around it and you protect it in order to to create space to think about the bigger picture and to think about how to how to be doing things better um so i really i really like that advice and i really like that approach um because i know that when i was working i'm cur currently in, in research land but I, I kind of ran away to research land because i just could not find that space mm -hmm. as when i was working as a consultant um to think about all these things that we're talking about today and to think about the bigger picture yeah so no. yeah now, yeah no, thanks for and ollie from your perspective yeah. typically you don't get much funding for anything unless you've done a business case within sort of public organizations what are, what are you seeing from your perspective of how yeah, this ai a, is funded it's it's quite interesting because i think like it's a, I mean, AI has always been a moving target and now it's like a even faster moving target, I think. So I think one thing to do is look at what you're currently doing and what people might already be doing that you could potentially scale. Like are people automatically in some nooks of the organization doing some really clever things that we can actually capitalize or turn into an internal tool uh, that essentially allows us to keep doing this are people doing the same thing across different areas? 
and trying to automate a similar process through AI? And can we actually consolidate them into a team that are working on the same automation so that we're not, you know, one person over here is automating traffic assessments and this other person's automating development assessments or any other kind of tool that might be in a built environment project. So looking at, you know, that duplication and those early adopters and figuring out what you already have, uh, I'd probably then also want to look at what the biggest impacts would be from the AI that we're seeing in terms of, first of all, automation, but then also potential value that could be added to a process or an improved outcome. So can we get a lot of value out of this investment? Then also you'd want to look at as well, do I want to build it ourselves and how much does it cost or do we just want to buy it? Uh, there are very big, you know, very big tech companies creating all sorts of things that can uh, support and improve workflows at the moment. We've got, you know, GitHub Copilot um, helping with code automation that might make things a lot faster anyway. There's the Microsoft Copilot suite, you know, which is going to help with PowerPoints and Word documents and stuff. So that transformation is already coming. So if someone's already doing something that's related to that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to invest in that because um, that's already happening. Um, then also thinking about, okay, well, what's going to happen now and what is happening now, but what's in the near future and making sure that you remember that and keep track of it. And then what's coming next? Uh, what do we anticipate as the things that are going to, you know, be on the far horizon that we need to think about that might also have a big, a huge impact or, uh, and yeah, essentially just thinking about all those things. So what we're doing, what are the biggest impacts? Do we need to build it or buy it? And is it now near or next? I think would probably be a helpful framework. Can I ask you all actually a question? We come from professions, you know, whether it's planning or engineering, we, uh, we have, we're members of representative professional bodies. We have maybe accredited credentials, you know, accredited planners, accredited engineers. The idea of sort of certification accreditation, is that a relevant part of this conversation? You know, I've always been a fan of that. You know, I spent a lot of time, as everyone knows, you know, in the green building movement and part of its successful impact in transforming the built environment was those ideas of independence, certification, benchmarks were crystal clear. And if you want to play and you want to come anywhere near the green building thing, mm. they're, they're sort of just foundational parts, right? You're going to be independently audited and you're not going to say you're doing a good job. It's going to be us if you are able to sort of meet the hurdles and there's a stamp of approval and that becomes currency. Um, is there any part of that making its way into this sort of AI conversation and or would that potentially be something that could give us some sort of more confidence that things will be good? I mean, Ollie might be better to speak to that, but it's again I'm not working for the New South Wales government but I have um, gone through their AI assurance framework which does start to put some of those standards in place in that kind of a format whenever you know it's one of those things if you're spending above a certain amount of money or you're Look, at, you're playing with AI in a certain kind of space that's likely to be impacting individuals and those kinds of things. Um, there have those kinds of systems in place within within that organization. 
Um, so, so is that a yeah? Is that a procurement lever, Claire? Like there's a there's a level of if you want to come and be part of AI related things or deliver those services or whatever it might be, we're writing this into the contract. Like these are this is sort of like a safety mm, valve. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Um, again, not an expert. There's get someone from that department to, to be yeah, 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 sure. I think there are a few. There are a few different. There are quite a few different standards that kind of work together. So, I mean, first of all, you've got your typical kind of. If you're going to make a product or an application, you'd be wanting to follow, you know, ISO standards or, or best practice standards in software and web development, right? And making sure that you're not exposing things like personal data, that you're not using things in certain ways. It's like kind of your typical kind of IT system architecture mm. requirement. And there are all sorts of ones that, that organizations can follow. I think a lot of them will be looking towards improving that or making sure that they're following one that also safeguards them against, you know, the potential risks of using generative AI, which obviously exposes people to a lot of risk when you use it because it's not designed to provide accurate information. It's designed to essentially expand on the information provided. So... Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of IT-related stuff that, that is in there, but I think in terms of um, other kind of non-technical, and I, I'm also not a legal expert, non-technical kind of requirements or standards people can meet, um, you're seeing things like the European AI Act uh, coming out, and we're seeing as well, I remember when I was looking even in geospatial uh, they were looking at regulating the use of mobility data and coming up with ethical and data use principles around people's location information through an organization called Locus Charter. Um, so I think there's kind of a, there's a very technical le lens you can look at accrediting and accrediting, mm -hmm. you know, what you do within your IT department, uh, which by default, if you follow that will make your, the use of AI in your organization quite safe. Uh, but then there's kind of wider ethical and legal things that also need to be considered like, you know, IP, personal information, you know, people's like moral rights and all sorts of things like that, that um, I think will take a while to come, come to catch up to this rapidly moving target as well. And I think one thing that I've been finding with those standards when I've been looking at it from an urban planning perspective so many of those standards are based around one, the uh, need to protect individuals' privacy, very important, to the idea that you are going to be protecting individual people from unfair decisions made by AI. Um, so that's your the classic example is that the robo-debt situation where the federal government issued debt no notices to people did, who didn't actually owe debts and then had no provided no way for people to to challenge the decision and and um, all sorts of awful things happened around that and so essentially uh, preventing that ever happening again and so much of our guidance is around those two things both super yeah. important things but when it comes to urban planning often we are not dealing with individual people uh, we're dealing with buildings sites communities places what is best for as a as a collect for those kind of collective impacts um, aren't addressed in a lot of these frameworks. And it's not something that I necessarily have the answer to, but I have some ideas um, around how we need to also 
into these frameworks, start thinking about how we keep measuring those collective impacts um, and making sure that we are monitoring those things as well, as uh, along with um, impacts to individuals. But yeah, so much of this stuff so far has been, um, yeah, people thinking about that kind of one-on-one -on -one service provision kinds of case studies, which again, mm -hmm. important, but uh, we need to, I think as built environment professionals start thinking about those those other bigger questions and, and yeah, what happens when we're not just thinking about individuals, but buildings and places and communities and all those kinds of things. One, um, and there's one, a really big oh, hole there. Sorry. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I've seen essentially try to mitigate risk and I think is actually quite an interesting concept to drop into the conversation is the idea of the AI kind of reviewer and it can be used in a lot of con in a lot of contexts, and I think particularly relevant to some of the conversations about like obeying different frameworks, be that you know an ethical framework or uh, you know a set of values put out in a planning strategy or a vision put out, or even just things like grammar. And so the idea that you essentially have this AI co-pilot that can peer review and make sure that what you're doing is relevant to you know the strategy of your organization or of your council or of your government, and go okay like has this document does this document align with this strategy does it like in the same way it does like does it meet this requirement yes or no uh how much does it align and give it kind of flags um how much does this expose people's information and essentially just get it to review what is being put out there and essentially almost like a free proofreader like grammarly but it's looking at other more nuanced um information and a lot um that you can actually provide it as a as a guideline if that makes sense so it's kind of like an always on strategy um, and an always on set of values or an always on vision that is essentially making sure that what you're doing is aligning to that. And I think that brings the vision and that set of values to the core and it makes people really focus on that. And you're like, what do we want as our, as our North star on like what we want from this whole thing. And then let's make sure every piece of artifact that it's delivered, whether it's a design or a, a, a document or a piece of communication aligns to that North star that we all set together in a group. So I'd like to change the conversation a bit and ask the question about how do we ensure that the built environment attracts the right talent coming from universities that people want to move into the built environment because typically uh, sometimes the built environment struggles to attract the right talent and so how do how do we how do we make sure that that, that becomes the, the built environment in within the AI space becomes a an attractive space so we or are we too early to, to to worry about that at the moment? I think from my perspective, what what really attracted me to the built environment was really more about issues than the uh, the profession itself. It was more about, you know, sustainability uh, being a very important topic, particularly at that time and kind of very fresh. And I think... I think just having that focus on the issues that you solve by working in the built environment and then can help solve, I think I think a lot of the new generation of people will find very attractive and I think they do find it very attractive. They're a very values-based generation as, as they become more values-based every generation to come and more, more progressive and aligned on things like social issues, environmental issues. So I think definitely framing it in that way is, is, is a positive way and I think that'll definitely attract people. I think the other way to frame it, and certainly why I am very interested in, you know, applying AI to the built environment is I think 
what what you do is scalable. Like if you if you you know automate and make processes more efficient and better, you're essentially scaling your impact in that profession. No matter what profession you're doing, like if you figure out a way to do something of good value uh, faster, you've you've helped scale that. And I think framing it in terms of hey, I can scale this. Um, I can scale my creativity. I can scale sustainability um, with with technology. I think that's a really exciting way to do it. And you know, that could be designing you know a, a green battery. That's also something that ends up scaling through a whole thing. So I think saying and getting people excited about using technology towards social issues is is a really good way to frame it. Um, I also think just making sure people know that you know you can do it, and the learning curve isn't you know super hard, particularly now. I think, yeah, the barrier to entry for a lot of these technologies is now a lot lower. So it should be, you know, definitely a core part of the curriculum. So I think even just making sure that the universities are briefed and aware and um, comfortable integrating that into their curriculum um, would be another really good stepping stone. You know, for example, having a common AI subject across all built environment subjects um, just to get people excited about and to say like, hey, I can do all sorts of things with this, not just one particular pathway. I agree with what, a lot of what Ollie said. I was attracted to urban planning because it felt like a very tangible way to be, you, know, you, you walk outside, it's all around you. Yeah, part of that was, was something that was genuinely really exciting for me. And I think using the technology to strip away some of the very mundane parts of what we do to get much more quickly and spend a lot more time on the much more meaningful things that that we need to be be doing and there's plenty plenty of problems out there which we are not spending enough time on uh climate change is if just one very very obvious example there and yeah moving as a profession as society um towards looking at those spending time on those issues um and then i suppose also creating pathways within non-technical, I mean, urban planning is traditionally non-technical profession, but I imagine there's other parts of the built environment where we haven't traditionally had programmers and coders and data scientists. And whilst you can work with external people, uh, it's also going to be really good to have a core of specialists within your profession who can do their translation across that technical, non-technical divide um, and identify make that process a lot smoother and identify those opportunities um at the moment most jobs would ask for an urban planner or ask for a data scientist it's quite hard perhaps i have a lot of young planners come to me who are interested in this space asking for advice about how they actually forge a career because that's not not obvious um you're either one or the other something i'm interested in is looking at how we can define those career pathways and then work with big planning organizations because it's definitely something, skills that everyone's crying out for, especially right now. But yeah, making those career pathways a little more obvious and a little easier to find. Great. Well, Ollie and Claire, we've touched on 30,000 different parts of what might be AI in the built environment. And we haven't even really scratched the surface, have we? But nonetheless, some really good conversation so on behalf of Gavin and myself at the DBA podcast, thanks so much to both of you for joining us. We look forward to further conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, we hope you liked this episode of the Digital Built Australia podcast. Remember, if you're not subscribing, you can do so. Head to your favourite podcast platform, or you can also go to our website, www.digitalbuiltaustralia.com.